Amen, amen. Thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. Um, we are excited uh, this morning that we are uh, partnering with our friends in global, global and local engagement, or global engagement, as sometimes you want to, uh, it's been uh, phrased that way. Um, but we are uh, continuing um, in recognition of Hispanic Heritage Month um, and connecting that to the one another's. Uh, and, and on Monday, Dr. Carlos uh, Tellez uh, shared about this idea in Romans 13. Uh, and, uh, there was a little phrase in there he spent a little bit of time on in terms of sh- giving honor to whom honor is due. And in Romans 12, it says to outdo one another in showing honor. And really simply showing honor is about calling forth the God-given dignity and value and worth in the life of another because they have been made and created in the image of God. And one of the ways that we can do that is through truly hearing one another's stories. And through hearing stories of, of, of another person's life, we are actually getting a window into the way that God is working in and through them, and that we can actually gain a sense of empathy and a, and a connection that this, these are uh, my, my fellow image bearers of, of, of God, and that these are my brothers, these are my sisters. These are the ones in whom God has called me to love as my neighbor. And so this morning, you're going to hear five different stories here from five different vantage points from individuals from the Latinx community, Um, uh, stories of those that are different from those on the stage, except one student will be sharing her own story. And so I want to pray for us, uh, help us to hear, ask the Holy Spirit to help us to really lean in to hear uh, these stories. Uh, with fresh ears and to consider how God is inviting us to be uh, brought into a sense of awareness and action. And so, Father in heaven, I want to thank you for uh, this time of worship. Even as we, as we uh, just sang a bit ago, that we, God, we want to place our lives upon the altar. I pray that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds today. I pray that you give us a vision of, of how, as we hear stories, how we can really give honor to others, so that we can outdo one another in showing honor as a way that we love others as ourselves because they are our neighbor. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So September 15th through October 15th is recognized as Hispanic Heritage Month. In the United States alone, there are over 60 million Hispanics. Over 30 different Latin American countries are represented in the United States. Hispanic individuals make up over 20% of the American workforce and are the backbone of this nation, often working tiring and high-demanding jobs that sometimes make them feel invisible. Not only that, many Hispanic individuals come from third-world countries that are afflicted with poverty, crime, and little to no opportunity for a better life. Many are immigrants who have come to the United States with nothing but the clothes on their back and the dream to have a better life. This is known as El Sueño Americano, or the American Dream. Today we will share five stories of Hispanic individuals who have surpassed some sort of boundary regarding their immigration status and remain hopeful about their future. Um, Although immigration is a very controversial topic and sometimes not comfortable to listen to, we ask that you hear these stories with an open mind and also an open heart. The first story is about Andrea Naya, who is a DACA recipient and a first-generation college student. DACA stands for Deferred Action for Children Arrivals. That gives people like Anaya, people who come to the United States as children, an opportunity to work, study, and live without the fear of deportation. 
DACA recipients must go through intense background checks, have clean criminal records, and pay a lot of money before that they are accepted into the program. DACA recipients also pay taxes and are unfortunately unable to, are uneligible for FAFSA and the majority of government aid. Most rely on private scholarships to pay for their education. This is Andrea's story. I was five years old when I came to the United States with my mother. Growing up, my family watched a lot of news and my mother always cautioned me about being undocumented and what that meant. But I don't think I really grasped it until I was into, or until I got into high school. It was such a big part of me, yet it was such a big secret. When I became a teenager, I couldn't work, I couldn't get my driver's license, and I couldn't travel. But I had big dreams and big ambitions. My mother gave up her dream so that I could attend college, so I wanted to complete her dream. When you have a hidden, such a big part of your life, it's hard to even reach out and ask for help or start a conversation. I thought, what is the point of this? I'm not going to be able to go to college. When I finally did open up to a teacher or a school counselor, they didn't have anything to tell me or any resources. A lot of it was just me researching on Google and reaching out to people to try to figure out a solution. I got into high school when Trump got into office and I left high school when he left office. I was hearing all this rhetoric against immigrants while trying to figure out what my future was going to look like in an America that was becoming very anti-immigrant because of the administration in the office. I wasn't able to apply for DACA when I was in high school. When I could, when I could last December, the question became, how am I going to pay for it? The application itself is $500, but that doesn't include lawyer's fees. One of my friends started a GoFundMe page, and a lot of community members helped me out. When you're applying for DACA, you have to report everything. It's hard because you don't have paperwork, and all of a sudden you have to prove that you've been in the United States for all these years. For the first time, I gave my information to the immigration services, and I felt like I was giving up something that I'd hidden for so long. Not only did I expose myself, I exposed my family. People don't realize how being undocumented runs deep. When the pandemic came, my family was really worried because we couldn't apply for unemployment or government aid. Most importantly, we couldn't just go to the hospital if we were to get COVID because of the immense amount of bills that we were going to have to pay. When the vaccine came around, even though I had read about that it would be free, my mom and grandma were like, well, are we going to be able to get it? We've been so accustomed to being left out of everything and it was, very, it was a very scary time for us. I don't think you could ever become numb to something that impacts your life that significantly, but I've been able to find inner peace. There are things about my status that, or there are things that my status doesn't dictate. It doesn't dictate what I'm passionate about, the work that I do in the community, how I treat my family, how I treat others, and who I am as an individual. But it still lingers in my mind every single day that my status and livelihood here are uncertain. This is my home. This is where I grew up. This is all I know. But any day now, I could be sent back or my family could be deported. Although DACA protects people who came to the United States as children, parents of those individuals are still at risk for deportation. Parents of these dreamers are being deported daily, 
This is Belsie's story. She is a medical student in Chicago, and her father was deported in 2018. The day they took him was January 23, 2018. My dad has had to check in with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, since 2011. Of course, we always knew there was a risk that he could be detained at any check-in. So you prepare yourself mentally, but you're always hoping it's never gonna happen. This time around, our fears were even worse because we had heard rumors that immigration officials were basically taking everyone who showed up, regardless of their criminal background. Normally, my two sisters or I would go with him and stay with him until he was released, but this time, they did not allow my younger sisters into the building. I was at home in Chicago that day, as I didn't have any clinical duties at the hospital. I was waiting by my phone, hoping to receive a call from him saying, hey, everything's fine. But I was worried, and I couldn't focus on studying, so I ended up just sitting there. And then I get a text from him. They're going to have to, me, they're going to, have, to have me detained, Miha. That's when the tears came, when your biggest fears became a reality. I was crying for a long while. Then I had to compose myself and call my mom, see how she was doing, then call my sisters. I couldn't say anything to my youngest sister. I couldn't console her in any way. We always knew this was a risk. What is there to do? My dad comes from San Marcos, Guatemala. He came to the US because he had been getting anonymous notes from people telling him to stop what he was doing. While getting his accounting diploma, he was president of a student association and began raising questions about the political climate and saying people should learn to think for themselves. That didn't suit some people, and they were threatening to kill him. Once he was assaulted, a couple of men beat him up. When he got out of the hospital, he went to the authorities, but they did nothing because they didn't have their names. He was scared for his life. In 1995, he arrived in the US. He filed for asylum in 1997, but his application was denied. He didn't have a lawyer. He didn't have a Spanish interpreter during the court proceedings either. He didn't know that he could, be, he could appeal, so he didn't appeal. Not understanding that detail changed his case. If he had appealed, maybe the story would be totally different. I arrived in the US in 1997 with my mom and younger sister. We crossed the Rio Grande River. They put me on a floating tire and pulled me across. I just remember knowing I was making my way to see my dad because I hadn't seen him in over two years. Growing up in Georgia, we didn't have insurance, so we couldn't go to the doctor very often. There'd be times we would go, and none of the doctors spoke Spanish, so either my dad translated or I translated. My dad always pushed me to help others because he always did the same. We were always taking people into our house if we had an extra room or extra food. I saw how selfless my dad was and how he was willing to share anything he had. He was always saying, we came to this country for a better future and better opportunities. Having those opportunities gives you the ability to help others. Those values instilled in me by him have taught me how to be a kind human being. That's what I want to do as a family physician. I want to work in underserved areas and help those who need it the most. As physicians, it's important to treat everyone regardless of race, religion, background, and even immigration status. Throughout this whole ordeal, my dad has constantly told me and my sisters that he has learned a lot from this country. He loves this country and he sees it as his home. He's thankful for all the opportunities he's able to have been a part of. He's even said that he'd fight for this country and he definitely doesn't want to leave. When I told my dad I wanted to go to medical school, he was, I was expecting some hesitation from him. We knew that as a family, we'd undergo some financial strain for me to attend undergraduate studies because being undocumented at the time, I couldn't receive government's financial aid. 
but he never showed any hesitation. He just said, okay, let's do this. My DACA work permit is until 2020. Currently, I cannot get a green card or become a US citizen. DACA is a band-aid, not a permanent solution. Immigration reform has to happen. The spotlight has been on dreamers, and that's great, but there's millions of other people who also deserve the opportunity to become legal permanent residents. They pay their taxes, and they don't have a criminal record, similar to my father. You'll also hear a lot of, dreamers are okay to stay, but we need to blame their parents for bringing them here illegally. I think that is wrong. Those parents, my parents, wanted a better future for their children. Every parent should want that. My family is like any other American family. We fight, we bicker, and we, but we also love each other. We're a very close family, and we all love this country very much. Most of my life has been here in the United States, in the small town of Calhoun, Georgia. The United States is my home. I want my future to be here, and I want my parents' future to be here. The political climate has affected us in a very tangible way. We're being separated. I'm losing my father, and I don't know when I'll be able to get him back. Regardless of everything that's going on, America is where I want to practice medicine and work towards having a positive impact because I grew up here, and I'm going to continue seizing the opportunities that present themselves because of the sacrifices my dad has made for me and my sisters. I'm not going to let that go in vain, especially with everything he's going through right now. I went to see my dad last week in the detention center in Lumpkin, Georgia. It was the first time I'd seen him since New Year's Day. It was extremely hard because I only got to see him through a glass window, and I only talked to him through a phone. I couldn't hug him. He was dressed in a jumpsuit. He's lost weight, he's not as well kept as he was, and it's strange seeing him. He's being treated like a criminal, which frustrates me because he's not. But my dad is always proactive in helping others even when he has little to give, even while in the detention center. We put money in his account, and sometimes he'll let other detainees use his account to call their families because they were the breadwinners and their families can't afford it. He finds ways of helping others that I couldn't imagine. He's had me look up shelters because men he's met in detention were going to be released, and they had nowhere to go. It's those little things that really make a huge impact on me, because whatever situation you might find yourself in, there's always ways of helping others. The current political climate is not the best for immigrants. Lawyers are constantly telling me that this is a trend they have seen for the past several months. People who are not previously targets for deportation, because they had no criminal record, because they were not risks to the community, those people have become new targets. I guess there must be some political gain from this, and I think that's a sad thing. Unfortunately, changes in the law have an effect on thousands of families. They're tearing us apart. I don't know when will be the next time I'll be able to hug my father. We've been asking ICE to allow my dad to stay here for at least another year until I graduate next May. We filed for a stay of removal, but it was denied. So on April 4th, he will be getting on a plane to Guatemala. One half of me will be with my dad, but the other half I need to focus on my education because I already made it this fall. My dad told me when I went to see him in detention, if you graduate with your degree, I will be happy. Everything I'm going through and suffering right now, I would do it all over again for you. Now that you have seen perspectives from scholars and adults, we wanted to offer you a perspective from a child. This is the story of Marisol. As she recalls, her mom struggles to come to the United States from their home country of Honduras. Sometimes I feel bad because I'm just a normal girl. I go to school, I play games, and I do normal girl things, but I don't paint my nails or anything like that. My mom was not a normal girl, or at least not what you probably think of as normal here. In Honduras, her house has a metal roof, and she, has, she had to start caring for her family when she was only six. 
She made it through middle school, but when things got bad, when there was no jobs, when there was crime and murders and the police wouldn't even help, when drugs were everywhere and everyone was unsafe, my mom left. She walked here, all the way from Honduras. One pair of shoes wore out before she even had, before she had even reached the southern border of Mexico. So for the rest of the trip, she had to wear her one other pair, a pair of high heels with the heel snapped off. I think of how uncomfortable that must have been and how uncomfortable I am in my life, and I feel bad. The hardest thing I have to do is fractions. But I also know that this is the reason why my mom walked. Every person has a purpose, I think, and every life has a meaning. And my mom tells me her purpose was to get here so that I could grow up in safety. She walked across Mexico in broken high heels so that I could study fractions in school and go to the park with my sister and live in a house with a roof. She walked in broken high heels so that I could be a normal girl. Next, we will share the story of Amelia, who comes from Honduras. In her story, she explains the difficulties of living in Honduras. She also describes her time spent in the immigration facilities and her hopes to one day return back to her home country. I left on a Monday around about six o'clock in the morning with my daughter, one suitcase, and a little bit of money. It's impossible to live in Honduras. The crime is horrible. Kids can't play freely because sometimes there are gunfights that last two hours. There are robberies anytime and anywhere. If you have something to give the thieves, then you're all right. But if you don't, they will just kill you. Three men attacked my neighbor and got angry when he had no money on him. They threw him to the ground and started kicking him and throwing rocks at his head. He started bleeding and his eyes turned black and blue. I saw everything. It was horrible that I couldn't do anything about it. Fortunately, he lived, but the truth is, if you try to stop something like this, they'll do just the same to you. All you can do in Honduras is shut your mouth because nobody is safe there. The day we left, my dad drove us to the bus station. That was the last time I talked to him. From the time we left the house, he kept entrusting me into God's hands. Fifteen days passed before we arrived in the United States. The road north is not too easy, but, is, but not too dangerous either. But once you get to the border of Guatemala and Mexico, you start feeling nervous. I'd heard stories about how many people are kidnapped in Mexico and how dangerous it is. So you travel through Mexico with that fear as well, but trusting in God the entire time. There are parts of the highway that are very desolate. It's like a desert and it's scary. We traveled day and night and slept on the bus. We only stopped to use the bathroom and then we would take off right away again. There were about 24 of us all together in our group. When we finally crossed the line, as we called it, we walked about an hour and a half looking for the US border authorities so they would take us in. I was feeling nervous but also happy. I thought, well, if they grab us, at least we would be in the United States. But I was worried that they would send us back to Honduras again. It was midday and the sun was extremely hot. We found we had run out of water. We didn't have any water to give the kids. We felt very desperate. We found a huge shade tree, just so we decided to wait there and rest there for a little while, since we had walked a great deal carrying suitcases loaded with our stuff. We also saw a bridge with running water under, beneath it, but were surprised to find that it was salty. We were thinking, if we have to keep walking, there's no way we can, drink, we can drink this water. 
But the border patrol showed up. They spoke to us and we approached them. We sat down and they told us to take the shoelaces off of our shoes, the hair ties out of our hair, and the same thing for the children. They said if we had any cash or coins, we should put it all in our suitcases. They asked us for identification cards and the birth certificates of our children. And then they began to take down all of our personal information. While they were writing down our information, a bus showed up to take some of us. Then it came back to get the rest of us. When we arrived at the immigration office, they, all, they checked us all over again. They gave us some food. They gave us some water. They gave the children cookies and juice. And after we'd been waiting for a little while, they called us through immigration and took our fingerprints, both parents and children. After that, they put us in a small, very cold room. It was extremely cold. We slept on the floor with the children. They gave us this aluminum paper thing as a blanket. It does its work, it warms you up, but it's very uncomfortable to sleep on the floor. More and more, people can, more and more people continued to come in, and because the cell was pretty small, we couldn't all sleep at the same time. Some people would be sleeping while the rest were sitting up. There was just one window where we could see the immigration officers working, but we couldn't tell if it was day or night. We didn't know what time it was until they gave us our breakfast, and we got outside, when we got to go outside for a little while. Then they would call, us, call a few of us to do some paperwork while the rest of us waited. It was difficult, but I managed to stay calm. We were there for about three days. Finally, they released us. I felt joy and happiness after being locked inside for days. We were taken to a shelter in Phoenix, Arizona, run by the International Rescue Committee. Everyone here has treated us very kindly. When we got here, they said welcome and hugged us. They were even applauding us. They asked us if we needed a doctor. They gave us food and something to drink. They also gave the kids cookies, fruit, and juice. And they gave us soap and body care items, feminine supplies, diapers for the babies, clothes, and kids, toys for the kids. Now I'm going to meet my future brother-in-law, my sister's fiance, who lives in Dallas, Texas. The volunteers here are helping me buy tickets for our bus or a plane trip there and letting me know that I need, what I need to do for the next step for our asylum claim in the US. I'm not planning to live here forever. I'm just hoping that they'll let us stay here for a little while. And hopefully my daughter will be able to get to go to school here. I want her to ha be something in life. I want her to have a good life. I left my whole family back in Honduras and I want to go back there one day. Honduras is a beautiful, is beautiful. It's lovely, but life is so difficult there. It's very insecure, there's no work, it's very painful. I just want to build a house and start a business in my country and be able to survive. Um, so now that you have heard stories of four other um, immigrants, um, I wanted to open up and share my own story as a student here at Northwestern, uh, share my personal story with immigration. So I was born in Acapulco, Mexico, um, and my family was very poor. Um, Acapulco is known for its high tourism. It's a really hot spot for vacations. Um, and although that is true, um, most if not all of the locals live below the poverty line. Um, so my family was really poor and my mom was a single mom and she was raising two, two kids, my brother and I. Um, and at the time we were three and five and it was very hard for her in Mexico to find a stable job. Uh, not only that, our city was raging with cartels, drugs, and violence. Um, and there was overall no economic resources. Um, it wasn't that we, we, we weren't even happy, but we were also, 
we couldn't survive there. It was just a means of we weren't able to survive in Mexico. Um, we lived in a really small room and we shared the living space with another family. Um, at times, my mom would tell me that she wouldn't eat just so that my brother and I could um, have something to eat. Um, and I think that's, that's when my mom decided that this wasn't the life that she wanted my brother and I to live. Um, so she decided to cross the border and come to the United States. Um, although I don't want to get into specifics, it was a very difficult journey to come to the United States and cross the border. My mom had to carry my brother and I, um, and we were still very young. Um, I imagine how hard that must have been for her, and I admire my mom. Um, for how determined she was to give my brother and I a better life. Um, we arrived to the United States in 2005, um, and although life here was still very difficult, my mom was able to find a job, and we started our life here. Growing up, I didn't really know what it meant to be undocumented. Um, I grew up here, so I went to school. Um, I participated in all of the American cultures, um, so I didn't really see myself as different from my peers. It wasn't until I got to high school that I realized about my status and I realized what being undocumented was. Um, and that's when I became really fearful of being sent back to a country I had no recollection of, a country I didn't remember anything of. Um, um, and that's when uh, I heard about DACA. As you guys heard, uh, DACA is a, um, it's a program for youth, uh, people who come to the United States as children and it serves as a protection from being deported. Um, and I applied for DACA and I was accepted, accepted into the program. DACA doesn't give you citizenship or residency, but it does take the worry of being sent back to a country you don't remember. DACA wasn't supposed to be a permanent solution, it's supposed to be a temporary fix, but it's been nine years um, and DACA is still, um, being used as a permanent solution for dreamers. Um, even then, I'm entirely grateful for this country and for all of the things it has provided my family with, not only economically um, and providing jobs and, and education, but also spiritually. Um, since arriving to the United States, every single member of my family has given their life to Christ and has accepted Jesus into their hearts. It was here in the United States where we learned about Christianity and in the church. And it was the church that welcomed us with open arms and it was the church that gave us resources and help when we, we weren't eligible to get those. Um, although DACA right now is uncertain and there is a possibility that I might end, uh, affecting the lives of millions of dreamers, including my own, um, I'm, I remain hopeful and I trust in God uh, and his plan that he has for my life. And I know that God is greater than all of my fears, and he is, and he will continue to remain faithful. Um, I wanted to close this off in prayer and pray for the Hispanic Heritage Month and the struggles within the Latinx community and for the people whose stories we shared. So if you can bow your heads, I'd like to pray for us. Dear God, I, I want to thank you today for the stories that you have provided us with, Lord. I pray for the Latinx community and for the obstacles that they, had, they have to continue to endure and that they have endured, Lord. I pray for each of these people whose stories we shared. I pray for their families and for their life here in the United States. I pray that they find love, joy, and compassion within you. 
As we stand before you today, Lord, I pray that you help us remember that when we speak of immigrants and refugees, Lord, we speak of the one and only Christ, that your kingdom is filled with people from all over the world, Lord. I thank you for their stories and the plan that you have for their lives and what you are doing and working through the Latinx community. I thank you and I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.